Hi, this is <laughs> Hi, this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. And we're the podcast You that, would do if you had nothing better to do. Right. We're the podcast of people who Yeah. <laughs> well, we've got a few I was gonna say people who are happy with the way they communicate with each other. Oh yeah, well we, we're we've sisters. gotten we've gotten this is I funny because just recently I don't know if it was a specific episode that tipped people that set people off or something, but just recently we've gotten a few concerns about the fact that we that we talk over each other, we interrupt each other, we seem frustrated with each other, and I'm like, what the fuck? We're not. We're no. sisters. Okay, if any of you have sisters that you talk to a lot, I'm sure it happens all the time. Yeah, and and the fact that. Maybe we, not. But. And the fact that we do it on our podcast, one of the great things about podcasts is that it's not traditional broadcast medium and you can be yourself. And we had vowed when we started doing this that we were going to be ourselves anyway. We're ourselves. And there's no other way. It. And you know, there's no other way for us to be. No. And we're not, I think sometimes people who are from different backgrounds or something don't, it sounds like you're arguing, we're arguing. We're half Italian, for God's sake. Yeah, we're half Italian. And it's not. And half Irish. It's not, we're not really yelling or arguing. No. But I think that some people think Right, and we're not like upset with each other, even if it sounds like. So we just want you to know. We don't care. Yeah, we don't. Like, well, actually, somebody said to me that it's someone who saw a video. uh, She doesn't listen to the podcast. She doesn't listen to podcasts. Which video? The one in the car? Yeah. She's like, both of you are just talking, and you're not even listening to each other. I said, we actually do hear what each other's saying. We just don't care. Right. We want to say what we want to say. And and, and it's not that we. We've been together. For 50 and it's years. not that we don't care. We're hearing it, we're processing it, but we have other things to say. <laughs> and eventually, it comes around, and the conversation, you know, yeah, that conversation takes place. We're sisters. We love each other. We do. And and so, this is our podcast. Yes. So we're fine. We're not arguing. We're not. Right. We don't, we're good. We're here. not frustrated. We're good here. Believe me, if we got in a huge fight, we wouldn't be having it on the podcast. No. And and I do we edit. I do edit. I edit out when we're talking over each other so much that you can't understand what we're saying, which actually doesn't happen that much because we try to... But even like, uh, you know, when you watch a group of people on any show that has like panel discussions or anything, like I was thinking of The View, but there's other shows like McLaughlin Group. They don't usually, they didn't usually do it much, but people do talk over each other sometimes and they're not related. We're related. So imagine eight of us. Yeah. The way I see it, though, is anything you anything that you would find offensive in someone you don't know very well, your family, it doesn't matter. No, it doesn't. Like you could say, "Hey, you look and, like and, shit today," and or something, said, and your when, sister would be like, "Yeah, whatever." When we started this podcast, we agreed that we were going to be ourselves. We weren't going to try to sound quote unquote professional. We're not professional broadcasters. We're not, you know, professionals who do this. And we have a specific voice and way of communicating that we feel we bring to the podcast. Yeah. And, right? Or we could be just anybody. Yeah. But this is us. And, you know, take it and take it. Yeah. Take it. Well, if you either, you know. I, You've been listening for a few minutes now, so yeah, obviously. I know that. And it's not for some people. Like I said, that guy that asked me, he said he wanted to listen to our podcast, somebody I, I've met at work, and um, he did not like it. Was so. he the guy who said we didn't get to the point? He listened yes, he for said five we minutes and we didn't. <laughs> and he said that 
<laughs> he knows me pretty well, so you'd think he'd be used to you it. You would think. It has nothing to do with what you were just talking about, but I just wanted to... Oh, that's so frustrating to me! I just wanted <laughs> to I'm ask kidding. you something. Okay. Do you ever... I'm sure that you'll, you'll no, I don't. answer yes. <laughs> I met. Okay, I met a customer yesterday that creeped me out so yes. badly. Yes. And if you saw a picture of him... He would look like a normal person. He was actually a very attractive young man, blonde, blue eyed, like a picture you'd say, oh, he's cute. But there was something extremely unnerving about him, and I yes. had to deal with him with something several times. Like he, he was getting a, a bunch of stuff, and I was helping him. And then he went over to another department, the appliance department, and bought appliances, and then he went. So he was going around the store. And I uh, talked to the even the guy. It was a guy who's about in his 40s in appliances. And I said, that guy. And he said, that guy was creepy. So it was funny. I was thinking, you know, when you see... I always think about that when they're serial killers and stuff. Yes. And you see their picture and they're like, oh, they, they look like they'd be normal. Like Ted but Bundy. So there's some people, though, if you but, are... I think if you have any level of empathy or if you're just... Yes. In if fact, you're just observant, that give you this feeling yes. that you're... And I don't think of myself as having ESP and, or... No. But you have... Like I think a lot of people have this level of awareness that's not just sight and smell and, and hearing, but a level... Yeah, in fact, I, w- I just reread The Stranger Beside Me by Ann Rule, Ooh. and there were people, you know, Ted Bundy was, by a lot of accounts, a good-looking, charming guy and stuff, but there were women who he approached who were just creeped out by him. There was just something about him. And there, yeah, and there are other people like that that you and meet I or actually, that you work with that are like, well, can I ever get a date? And, and I actually, because like, you really, give a vibe, You man. give a vibe. You in give fact, a vibe. In fact, am I... Second mystery novel, no news is bad news, <laughs> and this you didn't say that so I could plug my book, but I even talk about that, how there are people, like, I get, like, a physical reaction yeah. from almost everybody. Like, there are people you see them coming where you feel good, and there are people you just feel yes. not great. My last job, we were a street level and windows, and the sidewalk was right outside, so you could see people coming to the front door. You know, there were people I worked with and stuff. When I would see them cross in front of there, I'd either think, oh, oh, good, there she is. You know, or, uh, 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 oh, yeah. uh my day just got worse because that person just is yes. coming in. And I see and, people, yeah. And it's nothing even the person is necessarily doing, but there are just, I just you just get a physical yes. reaction. And working retail where I deal with hundreds of people a week, probably. Yes. I see people, and it's not like I remember everybody, but there are, I work in a big, I work in Lowe's, which I've said before, and so I see people, there are people that shop there all the time, because before I worked in a store like that, I used to be at Home Depot all the time buying shit, but I see people, and it's the same thing, they walk up, and I, and you immediately, yes, and sometimes I see someone, like, I've been working in this field for over 12 years, so I've seen the same people, and actually, I've worked in big boxes since 2001, so I've seen the same people, because it's in the same geographic area, even though at different stores, for all these years, and there's people I recognize, and I don't know how I know them, I know they're a customer, but I either have good feeling or bad feeling, you see some people, and you're like, I don't remember that person, 
but there's something about them that's bad. And then they walk up and they start in yeah. and you're like, ah. Well, my... Or you have a good feeling. Like, they're like, oh, that that's a nice and guy. You want, and you him. actually want to engage with the person. Like, my recent retail career only lasted four months. I decided I, I didn't want to work for the man anymore <laughs> like the like the bto song if you ever get annoyed you can be that was the line we were trying that's, to think of that's... if you ever get annoyed you can be a self-employed yes and or that's what i say, did look at me i'm self-employed oh maybe I, I that's another song where my so for 40 years i thought it said one thing but you and, might have been but in I any case in any if case, only there, there were, were places people, you could look up lyrics. If only. Like, you could just type them in, yeah. and it would come up. Uh, Wouldn't that be awesome? Yeah. Anyway. Boy, before the internet, we thought things... Like, I love that Volkswagen commercial where about the sound system Volkswagen, where people... It starts out, it doesn't show the Volkswagen, but people in different things, like a guy in treadmill and stuff, singing Rocket Man. Oh, yeah. And the thing... Um, he the, says, hurling out to... S- Something now I can't remember. Hurling out a uh, yak. Yeah, see, I never know what he's saying. But now. they're all getting it wrong. And then the two people are in the Volkswagen driving, and it comes on. And the right lyric comes on. They both look at each other and go, "Oh, yeah." yeah. <laughs> but in any case, there were people who would come up to the counter. Is this what I was saying? Yeah. Yeah. And I would immediately, within seconds, know mm-hmm. if they were going to be a fucking pain in the ass mm-hmm. or not. And we were supposed to like push our rewards program on Ugh, people. God, I hate and, that. And I know it's free and everything. And now, actually, the be- the benefit it's had to me is whenever, like, I was in an auto parts place recently, and they asked if I wanted to sign up for rewards, and I did, because I know what a pain in the ass. But there were people I just knew. I'm not going to mention the fucking rewards program, because I can just tell. I can just tell they're going to say no, and it's not me being negative or not optimistic. It's, I'm, I'm already having an interaction with this person that's a certain way. I know everything. It's like reading a bad book. I know everything that's going to yeah, be said yeah, and yeah, done. Yeah, yeah, In any case, so the answer to your original question is yes. Yes. And I think <laughs> a lot of us do. I think a lot of people do. And I think do. a lot of people who are interested in crime and stuff are that are the same type of people where you're interested because in... Of human uh, because behavior. of human behavior. And I think a lot of us... But there are people that are oblivious. But I think those are people who are very self... But you'd have to be very self... Either self self-absorbed or like I've known women that they introduce you to their boyfriend or their husband and, and you're like, oh, yeah. and that, I think it's low self-esteem or you second guess yourself. And, and I think, the desperate attempt by and the desperate need for some women to be coupled, yes. no matter how. And men, there's and a men, lot of men, like, men that like that. But I think that's how these a lot of serial killers, too. They, they, get the women, they well, have that empathy. If it's not, if like, it, yes. Ted Bundy, well, they have that empathy yeah. that they can read who the vulnerable people, yes. like, not to get off on another thing, but I just watched the documentary, The Keepers, which I recommend everybody oh, to watch. I haven't watched. But the people who prey on children. Ugh. are able to gauge it. they they make an art of knowing which children and it's the it's the ones that are shy or so, or, or, or who seem, have been abused yes. or who respond to a certain kind of attention in status like this one boy there I won't get into a long thing but had been an altar boy and the priest just lavished all this attention and he was the golden boy the guy kept saying I was the golden boy I, and the kid loved being the golden boy but he also made the mistake of telling his friends stay away from Father Maskell, and Father Maskell found out he was saying that, and 
just brutalized him, and he was no longer the golden boy. And I won't go into it, but I want everybody to watch that big tangent there. But we should probably get uh, to yes, today's should, show. Because I have but to just work. as far as people who creep you out, I actually was going to do, I haven't decided whether to do this or not, but years and years ago when I was a reporter in New Hampshire in my mid-20s, there was a guy, he was a local um, developer and stuff who really creeped me out, who was always inviting me to come up in his airplane, and I yeah. just did not want to Ooh, come, come up, up in his airplane. And he was later murdered. Hmm. And very interesting. And I can't remember and if they saw him. And Well, you know, the perfect murder. <laughs> you never got caught. Yeah. <laughs> But I really don't want to say that publicly. I know, I'm, I'm sorry. Taking the, we're but, joking. We were joking. Joking. But we have some updates before we even oh, get yes. to do you want well, to do yours mine, first? It's not a specific update, but remember what episode was the Uber one? Oh, oh God. Uber was that. Anyways, it wasn't nine, was it? I don't know. We should probably should have looked never it know. up. But anyways, <laughs> uh, so we did an episode. So I just noticed this story the other day. Uber driver charged with kidnapping female passenger in Canada. And this story comes from The Guardian, which is, uh, I found it to be a pretty good Yeah, that's the one where the guy source. in Montana just Yeah, got body slammed, yeah. poor guy. 18-year-old woman in Toronto claims driver refused to allow her to leave car and attempted to take her to a private location. So, Toronto police have charged an I Uber wonder if you driver. do that, you get paid more, like, you know, more than $3. Uh, with kidnapping and forcible confinement after a passenger alleged that he refused to allow her to leave the car and instead attempted to take her to a private location. Police responded to the call on Sunday afternoon. The 18-year-old passenger claimed the driver had initially attempted to engage her in inappropriate conversation and made unwanted advance advances, police said in a news release. The woman told police that she had then asked the driver to let her out of the car. The driver refused, she alleged. How many times did they say alleged in here? And instead attempted to forcibly drive her to another location. The woman managed to Never go to the other location. The 24-year-old driver identified by police... uh Uh-oh, I should have tried to... um, Sukhbaj Singh was arrested on on Monday morning and charged with forcible confinement, kidnapping, and assault. He is due back in court early July. So I'm just saying... It's not always the passengers. Sometimes it's the drivers. Uber says that they vet people. I guess if someone's never done something like that before, but I don't know. But I haven't driven for a while. And there was a taxi driver recently in Portland, not an Uber driver, uh, a traditional taxi driver that got his throat slashed by a passenger. The passenger was not trying to rob him. He was just angry about he something just and took crazy. it out. Yeah. And the, the sad thing is, I used to pick people up and drop them off where the guy was bringing him. Ooh, so it could have been you. Well, not that it could have been me, but it's just, it stopped, you know, I had stopped doing it for a while because it's really not worth the money during the winter in Maine. Summertime's coming. My friend With who drives. With the Taurus and the cruise Yeah, ships. and my friend who drives said it was graduation weekend. She she tweeted that she was really busy. So, yeah, with the Taurus going back and forth to that friggin' lighthouse that's a yes. mile from here. Like any job. Maybe I should just put a sign on my car. Five bucks to the lighthouse. Yeah. Like any job. That you're doing because you need to make money rather than you're doing it because it's fulfilling on some level. The amount of time you spend doing it has to be worth the money. And it's the wear and tear on your car and all that crap. And in Portland, there's just so many Uber drivers. Oh, there are way too many. I did it, the the times I did it, I did it during the day. And it it just wasn't. And I had some nice rides and, you know, I do it. I've never had, I've only had a couple really bad passengers out of like. it just wasn't worth the money. It was like 700 rides or something. You know, it wasn't worth the money for what I'm. 
for what I was doing. Anyways. But I have some updates, too. Alrighty. Well, why don't we go from newest to oldest? The newest is Tony Sanborn, who was episode 22, I'm going to say. So. Well, while you're doing that, I'll look him the up. The Portland man who's out on bail after serving 27 years as they relook at his case. The killing There's of, lots of stuff. The 1989 killing of Jessica Briggs. The latest is, if you listen to the episode, and we urge you to, the defense attorney... I mean, the prosecutor at the time, who's now defense attorney, Pam Ames... That was 22, you're right. Yeah, the judge wants two TV stations to release unbroadcast interviews they did with her in case she may know something. Yes. And the and the TV stations, it's kind of, it's gotten into this journalistic ethics thing where they're saying that the, you know, they're, they're saying that they don't have to release their stuff. But it's not a case of it's, you know, kind of like a journalist has notes from a private interview. Yeah. It's like it's, a, when it's they, kind of a gray area. Yeah, it is a gray area. And, and Ames... It, they don't mention this in the story, but the judge says that Ames may have, you know, evidence. The But the one thing we, we talked about, and we haven't gotten a good answer yet, is she claimed Tony Sanborn was pimping Jessica Briggs and killed her over the fact that she wouldn't give him her tips from and DeMillo's. And that's the only place that we've ever, ever heard ever. that. So I'm almost wondering she if, it if that's ass. part of the judge. The other thing, and this was way down at the bottom of the story, was that... Ames made a remark about how she couldn't have coerced anything because the girl's attorney was right there. And there, it's hugely, hugely documented that the 13-year-old alleged witness, non-witness to the crime who recanted her testimony, which is why Sanborn got bail, she was 16 at the time of trial, but she was questioned she was numerous I times thought. by herself without an adult or guardian there. And it's documented. That's documented. It's not alleged. It's documented. So I don't... So Ames, Well, but maybe what Ames meant in, in her defense is that when she talked to the girl, there maybe was an attorney there. Maybe there was an there. attorney there, yes. But, when the co- uh, but I think but, the ship had sailed... By that, the ship on the girl, what the girl was saying, yes. had sailed. Yes. Ames was just the end person on this one and a half years and of she, the cops. And she used it for her own, I don't know. So I, there's that one. There's that's that one. an interesting one. Then this, we're going to have to probably do another full podcast at, when about this. this. Yes, yes, because it's, 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 there's just so much stuff. And we still are hoping to talk to Amy Fairfield, the lawyer for Tony Sanborn. We have a lot of questions for her. And she is amenable to talking to us, but she's very, very busy. So we're hoping to have an interview with her at some point. Okay, what's your other one? It's the... You've got lots of updates. Antique Gantique. Well, mine are all old, so... Antique Gantique, the man who was was convicted of killing... Or not convicted. Who was going to go to trial for killing Chandra Levy in... Uh, I can't remember what year, 2001, and then he, a lot of stuff happened, I won't go into it all. I think it was episode 15, Chandra Levy, if you want to listen to it. (laughs) But he has been deported to Ecuador. He was an illegal immigrant and has been deported to Ecuador, which tells you that that case, it's episode 13. Yeah, 15 was our stalking episode, which I love, and you guys should listen to too. So obviously he's never going to go back to trial for the Chandra Levy murder. He was deported to Ecuador. So that's that one. Oh, is it because of the Trump thing or just... Well, no, because he's a... The prosecution had determined that they couldn't bring him back to trial at this point anyway because of all the developments in the case. So since he wasn't going to be retried, at least any time in the near future, he's a convicted criminal on other charges 
and he was an illegal immigrant, it's it's not because of the Trump thing. It's just, you know, illegal immigrants who commit yeah, felonies they, they and stuff usually, get yeah. sent back to where they came from. Sometimes even immigrants that are and here the, on green And the cards, third so. one is kind of a non-update update. Todd Kohlhepp, and that was early. That was, that was number was two. Was that episode two? I believe the so. The South Carolina serial killer yep, is two. in court, even as we're recording this. Hi, Todd. And they had told the families of he his victims listen. he's accused of killing, he's charged with killing seven people. And he's in court this morning. They told the victim's families to be there, but didn't tell them what it would be about. I don't know if we'll have an update on this episode, or maybe I can tack something on once that comes up. Okay. But just so, there's something going on with that. So, on that note, maybe should we get to today's story? Yes. Yes. And see if we can get through it. And I, I wanted to do something with a Memorial Day angle, since... This episode will be coming in out coming out on Memorial Day or the day after. So. All right. And I realized that there was a crime in our hometown when we were teenagers that the newspapers I just recently worked for covered. A cold case that was solved that's very interesting. And you all may remember it if you were paying attention a couple of years ago is the chewing gum conviction. Or chewing gum murder. Oh, yeah. And I'll get well, into I remember that. Blanche Kimball was a former dental technician and practical nurse who at one time worked for the state and had retired from the Togus VA Hospital in Augusta, Maine in 1973. In 2017, nearly 40 years after her death, here's what we know about Blanche Kimball. She was born in Albany Township, an unincorporated community in Maine's Western Mountains, in 1906. There's no information available about her father, and her mother, Fanny Eames, married Abe Brooks in May 1919 in Augusta when Blanche was 13. Blanche lived alone in a house at 352 State Street in Augusta that she'd inherited when her mother died in 1963. She had no siblings, was never married. Her own, only relatives were two aunts, one in California and one in Massachusetts, and some cousins. She took in boarders to help pay the bills after she retired, and the house, just a half a mile down State Street from the Capitol building, was messy inside, shrouded by overgrown shrubbery outside. And we have a photo, a file photo from the Kennebec Journal of the house will, at the time of her murder that we'll put online. Okay. Spoiler alert, she was murdered. <laughs> she drove a 1969 four-door Chevy Impala. One bit of information that survived about Blanche Kimball, who lived before the age when every detail of our life is recorded digitally for the world to sift through, is that she was a murder victim. Aww. Neighbors had last seen Kimball painting her steps on Memorial Day 1976. When nearly two weeks went by and no one had seen her, they asked police to check. What Officer Carol Clement, and that's a man, found on June 12th when he broke into the house, all the doors were locked, was mm. horrific. Blood sprayed throughout the living room and dining room of the house as well as on the kitchen cabinets and broken glass everywhere as though there had been a massive struggle. Really? The house was in disarray, and police weren't sure at the time, maybe were never sure, what was there before the struggle and what was the result of it. In the midst of the blood, glass, and debris was Kimball's decomposing body. Her clothing was pulled mm. down, exposing her pubic area, and she had 44 stab wounds, 12 of, ah. them, 12 of them to her head. Ah. Ouch. The autopsy report by longtime medical examiner Henry Ryan who just died the other day. Oh, but that's right. He did. He was medical examiner forever. Um, determined the cause of death, stab wounds into the heart, and numerous other cuts, along with hemorrhage and shock. And who knows how long she lay there dying. Oh. They narrowed down her death to possibly June 5th. 
Police found a so, reason. I'm sorry to interrupt. How old was she in her 60s? 70. She oh, was 70. Sorry. Did I not say that? You probably did say it. Okay. Sorry. Um, that's all right. They narrowed down her death to possibly June 5th. Police found a receipt from Cottle's Market from uh, June 5th. Yeah, we used Cottles. to go to Cottle's. They also found a Kennebec journal from June 2nd in the home. And mm-hmm. by the way, that was right near where where my paper route, my final paper route. route. It's where Pine State Vending is or something? No, I'll get to that. Oh, okay. Um, but I used to pick up my papers at the old DHHS in front of the state house, mm-hmm. but my route didn't go down State Street that way. It went up Capitol Street. So mm-hmm. that was my last one. Cool they, story, bro. Yeah, thanks. Sorry. They weren't sure about the murder weapon. Police said they found multiple blood-covered knives at the scene, but there was so much blood from the murder, it was hard to tell if it was just spattered onto the knives. Uh. They interviewed dozens of people, they said, but were stumped. Headlines in the Kennebec Journal in the week following Kimball's murder were things like, Police checked slain leads on June 22nd, 10 days after the body was found. Kimball killing Stymies police on June 29th, 17 days after the body was found. And Kimball death unsolved on July 13th, a month after the body was found. None of those stories have bylines or said much about Kimball, except that police were tracking down leads and didn't have a suspect. The final story on July 13th was six paragraphs long. Hmm. Our dad was the managing editor of the Kennebec Journal, Augusta's newspaper at the time, and I asked him about this and he got a little defensive. I'm still going to bitch about the lack of death of reporting. Well, it's not like murder is common in Augusta, you know? No, and nowadays, especially since neighbors had complained to police, and that was in the first story that she hadn't been seen, you go down and knock on doors and at least find out who she was, even if people don't know anything about the murder to fill out one of the challenges the Kennebec Journal had when an arrest was finally made in this in 2012 was finding out anything about this woman. And you go back to the stories and nobody really bothered to find out out anything then, to find out who she was or to talk to the neighbors at all about stuff. And you almost feel like if, when you see how this unfolded, if there had been better newspaper reporting, better reporting, that there may have been a better outcome yeah, or a different outcome, not a better one, because she was dead. But, you know, they had multiple stories, for instance, about a Farmingdale teacher who was fired. It turned out because he was he was kind of a bully to the kids and stuff. But, you know, a lot of front-page byline stories about that. And so they were covering things. And and granted, Dad wasn't city editor. And I and my question to him was more of a general, how did do you remember how you guys approached things back then? And was there a different philosophy about covering murders? And he just said, I don't know. We obviously dropped the ball, and he didn't want to. And I noticed as I went through the 1976 papers, they generally got better looking and more informative as the summer went on. So who knows what was going on at that time. But anyway, the next story about her in the paper was in early August. And it had a byline, Three Murders Unsolved in Area. By Jack Bell. We remember Jack. He later became a lawyer. Jack wrote that police had made little headway in Kimball's murder, as well as the murder of 18-year-old Deborah Ann Dill, who'd been found beaten to death and dumped on the Litchfield-Monmouth town line three years before, and the disappearance of Ludger Belanger, who disappeared when he went hunting near his Somerville home two days before Thanksgiving, the fall before, never returned. And there were suspicious circumstances surrounding his disappearance. The story did note that the shooting death of Donald French in Farmingdale, who was killed July 8th, just down the road a couple miles from Kimball, was solved that police expected a juvenile arrest shortly. And that shooting was covered extensively with photos on the front Hmm. page. 
It was the same in the same day. Pat Nixon had had a stroke, and she was the lead story. And then they had this big thing about the shooting. I think maybe part of it was they had photos from the scene that night. Yeah. So so Ludger Belanger, the hunter, has never been found. The Kennebec Journal did a nice feature on November 15th, 2015, 40 years after he disappeared. And we'll link that to our site. It was a good story by, of course, Betty Adams. Deborah Ann Dill's killer, Michael Boucher, was arrested in 1988 in what Attorney General Janet Mills later called planned stalking. Boucher was a 22-year-old cook in in a Lewiston restaurant when he murdered Dill in September 1973. He followed her, crashed into her car. When she got out, he beat her to death and dumped her by Ah. the side of the highway. He was convicted in 1991 and sentenced to life in prison, but since the murder happened before the state eliminated parole in 1979, he has come up for parole twice since. And it's something vigorously fought by Dill's family and the state, including Janet Mills. It was harder to solve murders back then. Yeah. I'll admit it. They didn't have DNA testing or the a lot of the other forensic tools we take for granted. For example, Dill's murder was only solved when Boucher was arrested for an attempted bump-and-run assault with his car oh, and another ass. woman in 1988. It's like a friggin' serial right. killer. Right, but it's 15 years after... So you wonder what else he was doing in the meantime. It was the same move he'd used on Dill to get her out of her car. This woman escaped, and investigators found a collection of Dill's personal items that Boucher had kept as souvenirs. Makes you wonder what else he's doing. That would be an interesting murder for us to do. It looked like Kimball's murder, like Ludger Belanger's, would never be solved. I'm not knocking the police investigation that much. We have no (laughs) idea what they did or didn't do. But this quote from Jack Bell's August 1976 story is alarming. One of the investigators, I think he was the lead investigator, and he was with the Augusta PD. This was before, apparently, the Maine State Police took over all major crime investigations. And I looked extensively on the Internet at the history of the Maine State Police to find out when, and maybe it was a slow transition. You can find out, for instance, when they stopped wearing little caps and started wearing cowboy-style hats, when their cruisers went from black and white to blue, all sorts of shit, but you can't find out when they started investigating all major crimes in the state except for Bangor and Portland. We'll have to Portland. ask somebody. Maybe I will. It was late last night that I was looking that up. <laughs> but the investigator the, from the Augusta PD, Detective Gerald Batillier, and I'm not sure if he's still alive or not, but these were quotes in the newspaper, so I'm going to read them said they, quote, had to be careful about investigating someone, unquote, based on a phoned-in tip. Quote, just talking to someone about it could hurt their reputation, he said. He said they study a person's background, quote, from a distance first to avoid provoking civil action against the department. Quote, a person may come in here with an attorney demanding why we suspect him, and on the basis of a telephone call, he means on the basis of a tip, I can't answer him, Batillier said. Maybe they had recently had some kind of issue. Who knows? But yes, they were cautious. Very, very cautious. Way too cautious. You're right. So cautious that when Gary Robert Wilson, 28, broke into the home of Ida Marshallden on East Crescent Street, less than a mile up State Street from where Kimball had lived on October 17th, they didn't start turning the screws on him, apparently. Wilson had boarded at Kimball's home Uh. before she was killed, and according to a 2013 Kennebec Journal story, investigators questioned Wilson twice shortly after Kimball's death, and he denied any involvement. (laughs) Gary Robert Wilson was probably familiar to Augusta police. 
I'll let the Kennebec Journal tell the story. This is from a 2013 article. And again, Betty Adams, I can't say enough. Betty. Betty. Betty she, is the only reporter at the <laughs> Kennebec Journal for the last well, well, 40 well, she's years. The crime, well, she's the crime <laughs> and oh, courts okay. reporter now. And she was very thorough. She did some good old-fashioned reporting because a lot of this stuff isn't on the internet. And she went to... The records, obviously. Yes, the, Betty. So, in 1971, Wilson was convicted of assault, high and aggravated, in Superior Court in Augusta, receiving a two-year suspended sentence. In 1972, he was sentenced to 10 days in jail for taking a motor vehicle without the owner's consent and operating under the influence in Callis, which is nowhere near Augusta. <laughs> in that same year, he did 30 days in Machias, again, down east, not near Augusta, for disorderly conduct. In 1973... He was jailed for 90 days after being convicted of assault and battery in Portland. In he a 19, got around. Yes. And in 1973 and 1974, he was convicted of what was labeled intoxication, which must be drunkenness. That was all, a lot of that was outside of Augusta, but now he shows up in the Augusta area. Here's more from the Kennebec Journal. Well, living on Page Street in Hollowell, and this is just blocks from where mm-hmm. Kimball lived, not that Augusta's that big a city. Yeah. He was charged with assault and intent to rape a 16-year-old girl who was a resident of the Augusta Mental Health Institute. The girl said he attempted to rape her on May 6, 1975, as she sat on the grounds of the institute, but she fought him off. Doctors who examined her found bruises on her vagina and scratches and bruises on her face and neck. A jury in Kennebec County found Wilson guilty of that offense in September 1975, and the judge sentenced him to one to three years in prison. However, court records show that Wilson was freed on bail pending appeal. Two homeowners put up their homes as surety, inexplicably, and ultimately the judge granted a new trial because of newly discovered evidence. We don't know what that was. The trial never took place because the state dismissed the charges, citing insufficient evidence and witnesses who were out of state and unavailable. On September 17, 1976, a year after that, and this was a few months after Blanche Kimball was killed, Wilson was ordered to spend three months in the county jail with all but 69 days suspended, which he had already served, and a year's probation for threatening oral communication high and aggravated. So if he'd already served 69 days, it means he'd been in jail for much of the time since Kimball's murder, Hmm. for about half of the time or a little more. The indictment in that case says Wilson was armed with a knife on April 28, 1976, a little over a month before Kimball's murder, armed with a knife, while telling a man, John, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill your wife and baby, too. He was also ordered to undergo alcohol treatment as part of his sentence. Sounds like a great guy. Four days after he got out of jail in September 1976, a Kennebec County Sheriff's deputy found an intoxicated Wilson in Manchester, which is just outside of Augusta, his car off the road. On the floor of the car were several empty beer cans and some full ones, Daniel Dodge, a probation parole officer, wrote to the court, seeking to have Wilson's probation revoked. A 32 caliber pistol with live ammunition was found alongside the road in the ditch. Dodge said Wilson admitted he had thrown the weapon from the car, which was stolen. A day later in the jail, Wilson was still, quote, suffering the ill effects unquote, from having consumed so much beer. But apparently he didn't spend much time in jail despite that probation violation because on October 17th, just weeks later, he was free to break into Ida Marshallden's house armed with a knife. I'm not sure how much investigating has changed (laughs) over the decades, aside from the DNA and other forensic changes. I'm not sure if we've all seen too much TV and expect too much. But I was also taken aback by Batillier, the detective in the August 1976 Jack Bell story, saying that the person who killed Wilson, I mean the person who killed Kimball, I'm sorry, 
didn't go to the house with the intent to kill Kimball because, quote, nothing was taken and there was no other obvious motive. Let's remember, her clothing was pulled down, exposing her pubic area. There's no indication if she was examined for sexual assault. I've seen nothing about that, or if any was found. But there were 44 stab wounds that today I would be... I can see why the state police took over yeah, murder I, In fact, I think I say that at some point oh, in this. God. It, it gets better. But there, there were 44 stab wounds, which I think today we would consider overkill. Yeah. He said, Boutilia, you say, it looks like another argument was involved. I'm not sure what the reference to another means, unless he's comparing it to his equally half-assed theory about the Deborah Dill case, which they thought stemmed from an argument, a girlfriend-boyfriend argument, because she was left beaten to death on the side of the road. The story adds that Boutilia said he had nothing to point to an argument either, so good for Jack Bell for putting that in. Boutilia also theorized that, quote, Sometimes it works to our advantage to have some time go by after ah. a murder because the person thinks they've gotten away with something and talks about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So much for the case going cold after he, 48 hours. He, he's quite the I detective. I can just picture him. Poor you guy. Know, We're disparaging we the are. poor guy. The reporter, he's, he's probably dead now. So. Right. The reporter, Jack Bell, wrote that, quote, it looks as though the case will get much older before it gets solved. Yeah. Uh-huh. Amen, uh-huh. Jack. Gary Robert Wilson was born Gary Raub in Washington State, and he was one of eight children. They were born on an... Indian Reservation, he's not 100% native, He's but their mother was trying to raise them without a man in the house. He was one of eight kids, and they were removed at various times. They were, as happened back then, put in foster care. They weren't, you know, they were basically taken out of, you know, there was no nod given to their culture or, yeah, yeah. or anything. They were put in foster care. He was adopted by a family named Wilson, which was why he was... His last name was Wilson when that stuff happened in the 70s. He said in court later he was adopted at age 13. The family was in the Navy and eventually moved to Portland, Maine. And that's how Gary Robb Wilson Navy. ended. Yeah. He was indicted on the Marshallton break-in with the knife, the October Marshallton break-in with the knife, in December of 1976. He had been in jail since... He was arrested on that break-in until his indictment, apparently. And what was he charged with in that one? He was charged with a felony. I'm not sure the exact wording. A lot of the laws in Maine have changed since then. But he was charged with a felony because he was armed with a knife and was breaking into the home of a woman in her 50s who lived alone. So she... Ida Marshallton. And she, she managed the, she, she managed she to get, get out. There okay. isn't much clear. There's no story about when it first happened. Ugh. There's an October. I found a little thing in the court listing in December when he was indicted saying it happened October 17th, saying her name, Ida Marshallton, at 7 East Crescent Street. East Crescent is part of this little rabbit warren of streets up State Street across from the Capitol, basically, mm-hmm. that area that's yeah. between Capitol Park and Water Street, you know, the rotary you know, Gage Street in that whole oh, okay. area. It's down in there. And so near Blanche Kimball, yeah, same basic area. That neighborhood, yeah. Everything that happened with Wilson happened in that little area of like South Augusta okay. in the area of Around, the Capitol. Near the river, yeah. yeah. 
But he testified at his April 7, 1977 hearing on that case. He had spent six years in prison in Littleton, Colorado for assault with a deadly weapon. When the judge sentenced him to five years in prison, this was Judge Edward Stern, according to the Kennebec Journal, and my I got so caught up in my research at the Maine State Library that I they were closing and I couldn't look at April 1977, so I'm relying on the <laughs> Kennebec Journal recounting of this in one of their stories. It's easy stories. to get sucked into it, those Oh, it is so easy. It yeah. is. But the judge, Judge Edward Stern, noted that, quote, if Wilson hadn't been apprehended, the evidence indicating that he had a dangerous knife in his hands, the consequences might have been a great deal more serious. Yeah, no Police shit. in 2012 said Wilson, Rob, had been a su- suspect all along. They just couldn't find the evidence to convict him. Nothing in the records, the newspaper accounts from that time, what went on with him, nothing that the police said. They kept saying they had no suspects. They had no leads and no suspects. Nothing indicated after Kimball's murder he was seriously being considered a suspect. Police in the August 1976 story, like I said, said they had no suspects. But you heard what Petillier said. Uh-huh. In fact, a state police detective told the Kennebec Journal in October 2012 that Wilson, quote, became a suspect after breaking into a neighbor's house shortly after the murder, but left town. And that's something that was repeated in newspapers constantly, and I think when he was arrested for this murder, and I think it was a case of people picking up something somebody had said and repeating yeah, it. But he didn't good. leave town. He was in town. He was in the Kennebec County Jail. He was let out in September after her murder. Shortly after that, he broke into somebody, a woman's house with a knife, was arrested for that and put back in jail. So he was right there. And maybe they thought he had done it and didn't have the evidence, but nobody was acting like that was the case. Nobody, there's no indication from from his uh, April 1977 trial. There's no indication they tried, you know. And did she not have any, she had no children or no family? She had no husband, no okay. children, so nothing. So she didn't really have anyone, like, there was nobody near, them. No. Yeah. Not that I'm saying that that is all it you know, takes, but it does keep the fire under their butt. Right, but the thing is, what I'm saying is, you know, there was an indication he was a suspect like yes. anybody else. He had been, I read a lot of accounts where he was questioned twice by police and denied any involvement, but he'd been a boarder, and then this huge, huge, huge amount of evidence of the same type. He hadn't apparently murdered anybody, but attacked people, yeah. attacked people, broke into a woman's house. Yes. With but in any case, he obviously didn't leave town as numerous I know, that's accounts so in 2000. He was arrested for breaking into a house a little less than a mile away with a knife, not right after the murder, but five months after the murder, and sentenced to prison. I know the state didn't start looking at the case again until 2003, and it looks like that was when Wilson became more of an obvious suspect. He was then Gary Robb, he was back to his original name, Gary Robb, instead of Wilson. But in any case, Gary Wilson at the time was sentenced to five years in prison, in the main state prison, for that break-in with the knife. When he got out in 1982, he hightailed it out of Maine as fast as he could. I bet. But he didn't stay out of trouble for long. Of course In not. June of 1982, Maine authorities got a letter from the Clallam County, Washington, prosecuting attorney seeking copies of his Maine record. Apparently, there was a charge of third-degree rape pending against Rob in Washington, and he was convicted of that rape in 1984 and sent to prison in Washington. The intake document for that case said Wilson, by then going by his birth name of Rob, had numerous scars on his hand, three-inch scars on his hands, it enumerated. He also had scars in a lot of other places, including on his head. So... 
fast forward to 2003, because nothing happened in between 1984 when he went to prison in Washington for rape, and it doesn't indicate that there was anything about that that made Augusta authorities say, oh, maybe he killed... You know, I look at what Botillier said about it looks like it was an argument or something. It doesn't even look anyone thought this somebody some nut job broke in here and assaulted this woman and killed her and you don't need a reason to do that i know except being a fucking nut and, and job i think maybe attitudes that toward that have to changed somebody in fact i you when see I, a woman that uh, lives alone right and he had a lot of issues with alcohol but reading the stranger beside me i read an updated version and rule had updated mm-hmm. it the first time i read it was the original and she mentions in there how the attitudes of both law enforcement and society's attitudes towards rape and attacks changed a lot since the 70s. And yeah. I think we can see that here. But in 2003, Maine State Police decided to take a new look at the case. Abby Shabbat interviewed those involved extensively in 2003, re-interviewed the investigators, re-interviewed the witnesses. And I guess they don't fear that you don't want to upset people by interviewing them had gone away nah. by then. <laughs> they all get sued for interviewing somebody. They also tested blood found in Kimball's home for DNA. So luckily they still had the evidence. Yes, they still had the evidence and there had been bl- and they had blood evidence and some of the evidence some of the blood evidence and this is important later came from a man not a woman. Okay. It wasn't DNA on, you know, cups in her cupboard or whatever from her borders. It was blood. And here's a quote from an affidavit Shabbat filed later when they went after Rob to arrest him, it appeared that the person who had stabbed Blanche Kimball may have sustained injuries that caused him or her to bleed, leaving possible suspect blood on various items in the living room and kitchen. And remember those scars on Rob's hand? They were defensive scars, very likely. So anyway, they had the DNA analyzed. They just found it had come from a man. They hadn't matched it with anyone. Rob, meanwhile, was homeless on the streets of Seattle and hadn't figured out how to stay out of trouble. In 2000 and 2008, he pleaded guilty to property destruction. By 2011, Rob had 10 felony convictions and at least 15 misdemeanor convictions in Washington State. In December 2010, Rob was the subject of an online post by a Seattle writer, Zachary Watterson, on a website called The Stranger. And it looks like it's just one of those kind of city, hip city websites with blogs and nightlife stuff and everything. Watterson was writing about another Seattle homeless man who had been shot to death by police. He was using Rob in the classic noble savage school of writing that I hate so much. The person on the bottom rung of society with the wisdom of the ages who makes us more learned folks stop Mm. and think. Make me puke. And why am I being so mean? Well, here's what the kind of trouble following those tropes gets people in. Watterson writes... As we spoke, Rob told me a bit about himself. He said he served in the war in Vietnam and was held in a prisoner of war camp in Cambodia for three years. Bullshit. Well, he was a POW. Yes, thank you. (laughs) It gets better. He said he lived in a bamboo cage set in a river that rushed around his legs. His captors used a gaff on him and yanked out his teeth, he said. And as he talked, I could see his toothless gums. You know, maybe decades of alcoholism Mm -hmm. and shit... Does that Someone too. probably punched him out. One day, Rob said, he was working in a rice paddy when he saw a sharp rock in the water. He fell to his knees and stuffed the rock down his throat, he said. That night, he used the rock to cut open the bamboo cage and escaped. Using skills he had learned as a boy, he studied the night sky and found his way to his base. Rob said that when he got there, no one could believe he was still alive. 
Okay, if he stuffed a rock down his throat, wouldn't it have cut his throat? I would think. So Watterson writes, Now it's 40 years later, and he says he sleeps outside the Value Village thrift store. He quits staying in shelters after being robbed repeatedly. In the mornings, he trudges to the coffee shop. I have seen him trudging, like an old devout Buddhist, though he is a Christian. That's a shitty writing, man. Yes, thank you. There's one thing people don't know about John, that's the guy who was shot by police. Rob says... He used to give money away. He was a woodcarver. He'd sell one of his totem poles and have a pile of money. Rob says, a lot of us, meaning his tribe of Seattle's homeless men, are saddened by William's death. Anybody who was on the street, John had a heart for. It makes me think, how about talking with people instead of talking at people? We need more heart, less hurt. The story goes into a PN about excessive force by police, which, you know, we all feel for, including William's shooting. Then Watterson writes, There is a war in our city, and there isn't a soul who can see its end. As Rob says, remembering his friend, we need more heart, less hurt. Now, as an editor and writer, I'm not going to go into all that, but first of all, you you don't... repeat the quote that sells it twice. Yeah, but anyway, Watterson later told the Seattle Post-Intelligencer that he hadn't checked Rob's credentials. Duh. Maybe it's me, but anytime someone says they're a Vietnam vet and then tells a totally unrealistic-sounding story about it, I say check the guy. Obviously, the reporter isn't going to be able to find out all the stuff. You know, the guy had a different name. It's not on the internet. That happened in Augusta. In Maine, with Gary Robb, decades ago, he could easily have found out about his convictions and even whether he was a Vietnam vet yeah. in Seattle. And it was just, it was just irresponsible, and it made it made Robb look like somebody he wasn't. The kid, the kid, the reporter was using Robb to get a point across, and it was kind of a trite point to yeah. get across too. And what surprises me is that piece is still up on the. Well, on the once internet. it's up there, it's always up there. Oh, in some and, form. And if if nothing else, he could have checked Rob's history of violence in Seattle and added it to the story. You know, it could have given it a touch of irony if he had the ability to do that. Hmm. But not only didn't that happen, I know the internet is forever, but you can take stuff down. Yes. Or at least put an editor's note at the bottom. The little I've seen of his reaction, he seems um perturbed a couple reporters asked him about his piece about rob after rob was arrested and he just said no he didn't check his background his, oh, or no. whether he was Why a vietnam vet and so that's the problem with yeah the internet maybe and the, just everything today is people don't see the importance when they're reporting things of checking their sources Right, and I don't think there's any real rules anymore. No, for a lot of well, people. there don't seem to be. In fact, a group of sociology students also profiled Rob around the same time as part of their Invisible Heroes project, and they're saying the suffering and sacrifices that he've made he's made for the United States what? continue to go unrecognized by our society. Yeah, because they're not true. Mercifully, that video is no longer available right. online. That, but that no, fact it existed was reported by the Seattle Post Intelligencer after Rob's arrest. But I guess the students, or I hope the students, learned a lesson about checking their sources. 
Yeah. You know, because they, they again, they're doing a sociology study and using him to make a big point, but they never bothered to check and see who he was. And the thing is, this fake news bullshit is all around us nowadays. And when people do write stuff that they do not have, it's not backed up by sources, it's not backed up by factual, what do I want to say? It's the, it's facts. Facts. Factual facts. <laughs> but it's not backed up. That that weakens everything. It does. And that just... Uh, and people just assume that's what everyone's doing. I know. Shortly after that, December 2010, blog post, in early 2011, Rob and another man, another homeless man, got into a tussle, and Rob knifed the man in the stomach. Mm. Charges weren't filed against Rob because they couldn't find the victim. <laughs> he took off. But police in Maine had Seattle, and this shows me police in Maine were now following Rob and finding out. Yeah, Abby uh, Abby Hoffman, Abby Shabbat had taken over the case in 2003, and I think they had determined Rob was the likely suspect. So they had the police in Seattle mail them the knife, and they got DNA off the handle of the knife, and it mailed DNA. Um, that they got from blood spattered in the house in Blanche Kimball's house oh, when she was killed. Because I'm glad re- they kept the evidence. Yes, because remember it's how amazing. they had determined yes. earlier that there was male DNA, yes. male blood yes. that didn't match Blanche's. I'm not totally clear on how they honed in Rob on Seattle. Nobody, it doesn't seem like anybody asked when he was finally arrested and everything why. But I, my assumption is when the case was reopened in 2003, the work Shabbat did at that time, just they determined he, and if, they found out where he was. Yeah, and, if they found, well, I think they can do kind of like when you have a Google alert or some kind of alert. Yes. That if someone gets arrested or something. Yeah. Not that they had a Google, but and you know what I mean. Maine State Police wanted confirmation of that DNA, however. And I'll let the Seattle Post Intelligence, or I think they go by PI now that they're an online newspaper. Pretty cool name, though. Yeah, they are cool. And they're not only cool, but they're um, good. I'll let them tell the story straight out of the mouth of Detective Mike, Mike Szynski, who had been instrumental in solving Seattle's oldest cold case, a 1968 murder. So earlier... So early in 2012, Sosinski got a call from Maine about the Kimball murder. And this is directly from a Seattle PI story in October 2012. Cloyd Steiger, Sosinski's partner, said in the Seattle PI story that the idea of cold case investigations created by TV has detectives tracking a suspect until he spits, collecting that saliva, and later swooping in and arresting him. That's not as easy as it sounds, Steiger said. In reality, police don't have the resources to follow a suspect for days until he spits or drops a cigarette butt. And when a sample isn't handed to a detective, it raises questions about who else might have handled Mm. it. Was that someone else's cigarette butt? Could that glass have been handled by another person, even briefly? Sosinski said credit is due to the Maine State Police and Augusta Police Department, which worked for years to solve Kimball's homicide. The arrest was made, he said, because of that teamwork. Rob had previously picked up his mail from the Seattle Indian Center, but hadn't been seen there for more than a year. So at this point, um, the reporter's story takes a nice, subtly snarky detour about the whole Watterson blog post about Rob and everything like that. Good. And we'll post that online and you can read that part yourself. But Sosinski had been asked by police of Maine to try to get DNA from Rob so they could confirm the whole thing with the knife and everything. 
and they couldn't find him where he usually went to pick up his mail, so Sosinski went looking for Rob. The story says he checked the Ave, the section of University Way Northeast known for transients and street drug deals. Sosinski brought three packs of gum and three packs of cigarettes. Ah. He'd made a single sheet survey with the names in all caps, Carlton, Maverick, and Viceroy for the cigarettes, Peppermint, Apple Pie, and Sweet Watermelon for the Wrigley's mm. Extra. The afternoon of July 18, 2012, Sosinski and partner Frank Clark went to the University District where Sosinski, dressed in khakis and plain clothes, asked another homeless man if he'd seen Rob. The man asked why. Sosinski said Rob had VA benefits coming, and the man pointed the homicide detective in the general direction of where he knew Rob hung out. Sosinski found Rob crouched against a brick building at 4520 um, University Avenue. He offered Rob $5 for the survey, trying first with the cigarettes. I don't smoke, Rob said. So Sosinski tried the gum, but Rob replied he didn't have any teeth. <laughs> Sosinski said he could get the $5 if he just put the gum in his mouth and gave his feedback on the flavor. The first was peppermint, which Rob thought was terrible. He spit it out into a manila envelope. The second was extra dessert delight sugar-free apple pie flavor. Man, I like this one, police recall Rob saying. <laughs> you can really taste the apple pie. You like it so much? I'm going to take a picture of you, Sosinski said. That picture is in one of the two-inch blue binders, along with a probable cause statement and the fake survey sheet Rob signed that afternoon that are all part of the case record now. He spit the apple pie gum into a second manila envelope that was rushed to the Maine State Police, who confirmed it matched DNA found in the 1976 homicide scene. The first envelope was also sent, along with a third, with a used piece of Wrigley's sweet watermelon Did he flavor. Like that one? It doesn't say. Ah! I know, I'm bummed. Thanks, man, Sosinski recalled Rob saying after getting the $5. I'll see you guys later. And he said, yeah. Uh-huh. The next time he did, they were there to arrest him, uh. along with officers from Maine State Police and Augusta Police. Tests had shown that the DNA from the gum was consistent with samples found in Kimball's kitchen and on the knife handle from the Seattle stabbing. Other DNA samples collected in the home matched samples connected to Rob and an unidentified woman who police believed to be Kimball. And this is me again, not the uh, Seattle PI anymore. Rob was extradited to Maine in January 2013. Health issues delayed the move. There was a year and a half of legal maneuverings, including the defense trying to raise an alternate suspect fight in June of 2013. Paul Bonsant, who would have been in his mid-20s in 1982, was planting flowers at one of the monuments at the traffic rotary that's up State Street, probably around a mile from where Blanche Kimball had lived. Paul worked for the city, and he was planting flowers at the monument, they have some monuments to veterans there and that type of thing. And he found a knife buried at the monument. Paul said he kept the knife for years, finally getting rid of it in 2012. Since Rob eventually, actually after shortly after this, pled guilty, the only point in bringing this up at all is that it's one of those things that still exists in stories after the fact including a story Rob was interviewed after he, and you'll see in a minute, he pleads guilty, and he brought it up. The alternate suspect, as though Paul Bonson could have, why didn't they look at him harder kind of thing, and the reporter never really downplays it. And and I'm just going to go a little more about Can what happened. Yeah, yeah. I'm just going to go a little more about what happened in the hearing, and then Bonson said, I'm sorry, that was June 2014, not 2013. 
Bonson said in, a June, in the June 2014 court hearing that he didn't think of the knife as being connected with the murder, which happened six years before. If I'd had any idea, I would have given it to police, he said. He said he grew up on Kennebec Street, not far from Kimball's home, and mowed her lawn once or twice when he was a teen. He also testified to seeing a boarder at Kimball's house when he mowed the lawn. Defense attorney Sherry Tash told Justice Roland Cody that Bonson was their alternative suspect saying that he had a knife, that he got rid of it suddenly, and they told, told at least one person, and, and I think, yeah, if you can say 30 years later is suddenly, and that he told at least one person it had been used to kill someone and that he had connected it to the unsolved murder. Why would that surface in his mind unless he had some sort of guilty conscience, Tash asked the judge. The judge listened to a recording of police interviewing Thomas Corrette, also of Augusta, who told his probation officer in 2011, now this was before Rob was arrested or anything like that, that he heard a conversation between Paul Bonson and his brother Philip Bonson about a knife that might have been used to kill someone. But Corrette testified at this hearing, I've never definitively said this was the weapon. I may have misconstrued it. It may have been used in wartime, but I'm thinking it may have been used in this lady's death. And that's, he's explaining how he may have misconstrued it. As somebody buried this knife below a veteran's monument. Mm -hmm. Bonson let out a brief chuckle at the hearing and said no after Tash asked him if he killed Kimball. Cole told Tash the connection between Bonson mowing Kimball's lawn, Cole is the judge, a couple times, is not enough of a link to suspect him of murder and that it was likely someone would bury what they believed to be a military knife at the base of a monument. Assistant Attorney General Laura Namani disagreed with the defense position on the alternative suspect. There is not one scintilla of evidence that Paul Bonson murdered Blanche Kimball, Namani told Cole. There are no witnesses, no evidence, no motive, no opportunity. Namani characterized the conversation Corrette testified to as, quote, a discussion among drinking buddies over the course of time when they're discussing urban legends. So what I was going to say about that was... You know, it's a typical kind of lawyer move. You want to cast out. The the Kennebec Journal never really ran a story saying how the judge ruled on the alternative suspect. And maybe it's because short, it was shortly after that Rob entered an Alford plea to Yeah, the man that would have ruled. But also, it was June 2012 that Paul Bonson got rid of the knife. So yeah. it was before months before Rob was known by anybody publicly to be involved with this months before he was arrested and the news broke. And so you were going to say... No, what I, w I was going to ask, but you answered it. So pretty much I wondered if he had gotten rid of the knife, how did they even know he had it? But it was his friend. Right. His friend told his probation off in 2011, but, told his probation. So this was way before. But that's Rob. kind of weird. So if he said to his, his probation officer, oh, my friend has a knife and he thinks it... Whatever. Trent, you know, he thinks it might have been in a murder. Why didn't they go to Paul and say, look, do you have this knife? Right. Why didn't anything happen in 2011? But also, I can see having that kind of, you know, the way our minds work. Oh, gee, I was working and I found this knife. Ha ha, I wonder if it killed somebody. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, I know. Oh, it's probably someone buried it's, it because they killed really, somebody. It's Why really would a weak. knife be here? And, and you know? also, right, and it's just it was it's just not, really weak. It's not really an unusual thing to say. And we know the Bonsons. Yes. They were a big family in Augusta. And we're a big family. And we're a big family. Catholic. Catholic kids, so we went to the same schools. I was in school with C Cindy. I was in school with, with Deborah. And Patrick. And a year older than me. Patrick, and he's a friend of more more you and Billy yeah, than me, our brother yeah. Billy. And I asked him about this whole thing. And Pat said at the time it embarrassed 
his family that this was brought up, which I, um, you know, he he obviously, he doesn't think his brother had anything to do, he can definitively say his brother didn't have anything to do with the murder, and I don't think anybody thinks his brother, except for the problem is, the defense throws this out there, it's in the paper, the, the paper doesn't make a really good faith effort to stress that it's it was just a, tossed away. And I'll yeah. talk a little bit more about and that you know, later. I understand that, that that's the job of, you it's know, to sow doubt. It's to, yeah, it's to sow doubt. I mean, it really may, it can make someone else's life really difficult when the only thing is he found this knife. Granted, what the hell, you know, I don't know why you would hold on to it for 30 years unless you thought that maybe it was if I found something and thought it was part of a crime I would probably just bring it to the police and say look I was clean I was working right. and I found this and if I didn't I can see holding on to something just and you can't I mean everybody I mean I, I'm a hoarder whatever. everybody does things differently and who knows if you think it's a cool thing or it was involved in a crime and you want to keep it and kind of flash it around or whatever but as we talked about in the Tony Sanborn episode 22, everybody had knives back then. Yeah, they Everybody did. had yeah. knives. Just yeah. finding a knife yeah. in Augusta, like, within a mile radius of a crime that was committed six people years before. Knives. I mean, people crazy. And, and now a lot of people do. They have Leatherman, you know, multi-tools. People still. It's still not unusual for someone to have a knife. If, but finding a knife, even hunting knives and stuff like that. Yeah, we talked about that before in high school. Right. People would have a hunting knife strapped to their chariot. Yeah, belt. so it was just... Patrick Paul's younger brother also points out this. I kind of thought this when I read that story too. The first time I read that story, when he chuckles and says, "No, he didn't kill her. He's not." It's more of a scoff. A, more of a, a yeah. scoff. And I think the reporter just didn't relay it in a way that people. Well, it wasn't like good. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. The empath says, "Knowing Paul, the chuckle was an incredulous, you have to be kidding me' type of reaction." And I kind of felt that, but also I felt reading the story, it didn't elaborate on his reaction enough for people to necessarily take that away from it. And, you know, I think that's bothersome, too, that if you're going to, when you're going to throw somebody's name in the paper as a possible suspect, you really have to do everything you can to make the situation clear as to what it is and, and objective and if the judge had ruled on the alternative suspect before the Alfred plea that should have been reported and the judge's reaction uh, the judge didn't rule at that hearing but the judge said it doesn't seem plausible and there doesn't seem enough of a link that should have been repeated I that mean, the there judge was no there was no evidence at all right I mean, and and Pat wants to say too that they were embarrassed when his brother's name was brought up. His family was, but they're also they really hope that Blanche Kimball's family was able to find some kind of closure. And you know they sympathize. Is it a lot? You know, it's a lot sad. of people do. But um, obviously, Rob's attorneys realized the best thing to do after that hearing was what they did. That Rob eventually took an Alford plea. And for those of you who don't know what that is, that's where you plead guilty but you don't admit guilt. What you're basically doing is acknowledging that there's enough evidence to convict you. And so you're kind of saying, okay, I give up. You guys will convict me. And so that's another thing that I feel doesn't totally clear up people who have suspicions wrongly placed about Paul Bonson is that an Alford plea is taken by people frequently where you know they're... Right. But come on. So at the June 30th, 2014 hearing on the plea, which was um, to a lesser charge than the original murder, murder charges had changed to Maine, and I won't go into a lot of legal 
mumbo-jumbo about it. If Matt were here, he could help explain it, but he's not. That the wording of the murder in 1976 wouldn't have been the same, but anyway, it was a lesser plea, now second-degree murder. I think both sides breathed a sigh of relief that it wasn't going to trial. Nobody wanted to try a 38-year-old case at that point. Rob's attorney, Kevin Sullivan, said, Mr. Rob lived in the home of Blanche Kimball as a boarder for a short amount of time. Mr. Rob's DNA was found in the home, and there was a good chance a jury would consider that enough to convict him. Of course, he, he's implying there that his, his DNA was in the home because he was a boarder, ah. but his actual blood <laughs> yeah. was found. Okay, Due to an injury in the 1990s, Mr. Rob does not have any memory of this. Sullivan went on to say that Rob, who is not in good health, and this is from a Kennebec Journal story about um, the Alford plea, hopes to someday be released and didn't want to risk a life sentence. Deputy Attorney General Bill Stokes, who appears in many of our episodes. Yeah, just like Feely does, Just like too. Tim Feely, right? Maine's a very small state. Yeah. And Stokes is now a Superior Court judge. Stokes was once the mayor of Augusta, too. Oh, I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah. Mm. Said the prosecution faced hurdle, hurdles as well. When you're dealing with a case that's 38 years old, there are difficulties in gathering witnesses, finding witness recollections, the way evidence was handled, <laughs> and the whole way cases were investigated 40 years ago, as we learned like, earlier. Like, by interviewing Yeah, it's different from today, Stokes said. So if Rob was convicted at trial of homicide in the first degree, he would have been ordered to serve a mandatory life sentence. The second-degree homicide conviction carried a minimum sentence of 20 years, and so that Rob was sentenced to 20 years at the time he was 65, and it was the oldest, coldest case conviction in the state of Maine. In an interview after his guilty plea, he told Betty Adams of the Kennebec (laughs) Journal that he'd been beaten severely in 1993 with a baseball bat to the head, causing a head injury that affected his memory, and he has no memory of Kimball or the murder. I pled guilty because it must have happened, he said. Okay. And he also felt it was entrapment about the bubble gum or the oh, chewing please. gum. Yeah, right. Get over it, buddy. And he, and uh, although he, he, um, he goes, if they had asked me for my DNA, I would have done it, he said. I have nothing to hide. They never asked me. I don't know anything about law. Duh. I'm not an intelligent person as far as the law goes, as far as entrapment goes. My attorney says, no, it wasn't entrapment. Rob said he is smart about some things and proud that no one at the Kennebec County Jail has beaten him at chess. Because we all know chess is the definitive measure of how intelligent you are. (laughs) Well, (laughs) you know. And I know everybody wants, everybody who's looked at Rob's picture on our website wants to know about his beard. So Betty writes, he still has a long white beard that appears to be his trademark. When he was arrested, it had streaks of color in it. I take excellent care of it, he said. I take two showers a day. Well, that's good. Sounds like things are pretty nice at the Kennebec County Jail. He had it dyed red by a hairdresser in advance of Halloween 2012, which is why it retained reddish-purplish streaks when he arrived in Maine in January 2013. And that was following the extradition process. He sold streaks of color, and he had a big Band-Aid on his head. Uh, If you haven't looked at, at the picture on our website... You can check it out. Rob died on June 29, 2016, almost two years to the day after his conviction. Aww. And in that story, going back to the alternative suspect, he brings that up, and the story never says the judge said that wasn't plausible. The judge 
uh, didn't yeah, rule on that. And that. Obviously, the defense felt it was weak enough that even if the judge, I mean, we don't know how the judge ruled, that they took the Alford plea. Yeah. So I know I've been bitching throughout this story about the quality of some of the journalism, but that's because, you know, people's lives are affected. And it's up to reporters to be as conscientious as they can about and their editors doing the research. The and editor is there to ask the question, like, did you find this out? Did, I mean, I don't know what an editor does, really. I'm not smart about editing. But you do play but checkers. But I do play chess. <laughs> I actually suck at chess, too. And checkers. Yeah. I don't, I'm not good at any of those No, games. me neither. But it seems to me that as an editor, if you see something missing from a story... Or you have an obvious question. So this is my pet peeve when I'm reading any news story. Mine and too. I, I used to say, I used to always tell you, like, after I finish the story, it's like, well, what about this? What about this? And what about this? I mean, there are obvious questions that were not answered when I read the story. Yes. And it drives me nuts. Even if it's something trivial. Like if they say, this building is the second oldest. Yeah, what's the first? Uh, yeah, Ritz. outhouse in the yes, United you. States. Well, what's the first? Yes. As I an editor, As an editor, I always Do it as an What's a, the dog's name? That's your thing. Yes, it's one of my many What's things. What's the breed and breed. name? But as an editor, I always tried to answer those questions. I always used to laugh like I'd ask a reporter and a question. And for it. Yeah, pretty much. You're dead. Um, but I would, but I, I used to always laugh when the reporter would say, well, I assume blah, blah, blah. And I said, no, I'm not asking you because I want to know. I'm asking you because it's a question in the story. I don't want you to assume something. I want you to go back and find it out and put and it in the story. Like, oh, she's so hot. She's and so what mean. A, I what know. Why is she being such a hard ass? But it is. But, it's very frustrating. But back to the case. Okay, yes. So I thought it was, and again, we're looking back at 1976, and we don't believe this 41 years ago. I know. I know. But it was funny when I was, oh, oh, I feel another tangent coming on. When I was going through those (laughs) newspapers, it took me a lot longer than I thought because I kept getting caught up in reading the stuff. There was a lot. Everybody thinks of, you know, nowadays, oh, everything's so awful and violent. And back then, nothing was happening. That was the summer. Okay, the Harrises who kidnapped Patty Hearst were on trial. The um, guy who who took ho- the kid, the busload of kids and hostage it. and buried it oh. in the in the yard was the and they got out safe. For those of you yes. who don't know that story, but he was uh, arrested as long as that happened, and then he was shortly after arrested along with a buddy of his. There was a college shooting where seven people died in California, Cal State Fullerton, that got a few little paragraphs way inside Which the is paper. Weird. So, well, people who think this is all a new, that, well, part of it is the only news source was, like, radio, non-extensive TV, and newspapers. And they'd only have bulletins if it was something really real. Even that shooting wouldn't have probably been a bulletin. Right, it probably wouldn't have been. So there were things like that going on. There were there was a murder in Falmouth, a woman who was the sister-in-law of Joan Payson, who owned mm-hmm. the New York Mets, who yes. had died shortly before and stuff. A very and rich was family. A she was year. shot to death, and they it took them a while to find out who did it, but it was a home invasion thing. There was a shooting right after Blanche Kimball, I think I mentioned earlier, down the road in Hall in um, Halldale in Farmingdale. It was a year since Kurt Newton had disappeared and. Chaina Ponds camping with his family. He was a little boy. He was Aww. one of the first milk carton kids, so they did a retrospective on that. He's never been found. Mm. So there's a lot going on. So I got a little bogged down, but we can't. We can only really know what happened in this investigation from what we read in the paper and the little bit we've read now, looking back at that. But even the little bit we read, I don't think I'm being totally unfair to say 
that if investigation was the same in 2016 or 2017, if it was the same in 1976 that it is now, Gary Robb, or Wilson as he was known then, probably would have been right on the radar right he away. He would have been arrested. And even quickly. without DNA. Yeah. And, and this... And it, wasn't, it wasn't that... It right. doesn't seem like it would have been that and, mysterious. Uh, and, and we kept reading in 2012 when he was arrested that he left town... They questioned him, but he left town shortly after her murder. No, he didn't. Within several weeks, he was in jail for the probation violation on the attempted rape that had happened the year before. Now, he was in the Kennebec County Jail on State Street in Augusta, same street as Blanche Kimmel's house, a couple miles north. So he hadn't left town. He was in jail. And then he got out of jail, immediately broke into a middle-aged woman's house with a knife and was caught and was back in jail. And it blows my mind and it's not like Augusta not, was no, that big a small, place. It's, it's a, a city of 18,000 people. Oh, yeah, and back then it was about the same size. Yeah. Don't tell me the police didn't know who this guy was. And that's the guy we questioned. And how many murders happened in Augusta in a year? One or two at the None. Most? I mean... None a lot of the time. I know. I mean, it's not like... There's only... At the time there were an average of 35, 36 murders in Maine a year. That's gone way down. Yeah. But in Augusta... There, you know, when when there was that August 1976 story about the un, about the murders, That's there true. was Blanche Kimball, yeah, yeah, and and they were and Blanche Kimball was the only one in Augusta. Yeah. Farmingdale was and just like two miles was, down the road. One was on the Monmouth Litchfield line, so that was a few oh, yeah, miles out yeah. of town, and the other one was in Somerville, which, which is, is several miles. Yeah. It it just flummoxes me that he was not on the radar, but I think the attitude. When the cop said, well, it looks like they had an argument. Maybe they did have an argument. Maybe she wanted money for because he didn't pay for his boarding. Who knows? But it was more than just that. Her clothes were pulled up. She was stabbed 44 times, including in the head. The house looked like it had been ransacked. And she's a 70-year-old woman. It's not like she's fighting him tooth and nail throughout the house. She's it's not a, like it was a domestic... Uh, so no, that anyway. so Maine, well, Maine's oldest cold case. So that was the oldest one solved. So, so many, the oldest though. one. So the oldest cold case in Maine, and it hasn't that hasn't been solved, or just the oldest cold case in Maine, yeah. is uh, Mary Catherine Olenchuk, which I think Janet Mills mentioned in her speech. She did yeah. when we talked Janet about Mills Janet Mills, the um, Attorney General. Attorney General. We saw and her speak recently. She was a. She was the daughter of a U.S. general, actually. Oh, that's right. And at the time, right. it was thought it may have had something to do with protests involving the war. We won't go into a big thing about it because we might as well have done an episode. But it was in Kennebunk, Maine, down on the coast. They had a summer home there. That's one of the places that the rich folks go in the summer, and we appreciate it too. We're not knocking the rich folks who come and keep Maine from just flushing right down the toilet. But she was strangled to death and found hidden in an unused barn. She was 13. They have never solved that murder. Her bicycle was found nearby. She had gone out for a bike ride, I think, to go to the store or something. I may be getting those little details wrong. That hasn't been solved. And the little bit, we'll have to do an episode on that, because a little bit I've read about that. It seems like some of the assumptions at the time about what happened with her were off. And the problem is if you're looking for the wrong type of person instead of just looking at the facts in front of you, and I'm not making this up, I'm, I actually heard an investigator say this recently, that, and I wish I could remember what case it was, but you have to look at the evidence in front of you and not 
you know, everybody speculates and kind of tries to figure out what happened, but you have to look at the evidence in front of you and decide from that yeah, what happened. Yeah, you have to almost put blinders on about a lot of things that... Uh, that Well, for instance, when a serial killer is killing sex workers, there's always this assumption, well, they're probably a drug user, they're this or that. You can't assume anything. I always assume it's a white, middle-aged male. I do assume <laughs> that. But you can't for each case. And I think a lot of times if they had done that, like for, I'm just thinking of serial killers in general, if they do, if they did that for each case, case that came in front of them. Nowadays, it's, there's more communication between departments. Uh, departments and stuff. But if people would have just looked at the facts that they have about the case and the victim, I think a lot of times they would have put them together more quickly. I mean, it's easy for me to say. Yeah, but, instead but, of making assumptions. Or assume that the girl, like when someone's abducted, assuming that they ran away just because they're a teenage girl, even when their parents are like, no, she's a straight-A student, she... Or she has a job, she's making, you know, she's very responsible. I mean, I know some parents are, are um, clueless. clueless. Well, you always get frustrated when you listen to podcasts or watch documentaries about somebody who was murdered. And I don't think this happens as much now as it did before, but it still does, where the people who are concerned go to the police. And like when we were talking about the wood chipper thing and yeah. everything, and the police are like, Nah, you know, that person is just missing. And granted, most missing people are. They're people who have taken but off. But usually you find them in a few days. Like if someone took off on a weekend and didn't tell anybody or something. Yeah. If you were missing, if I couldn't get in touch with you and whatever for a few days when you lived alone or when I lived alone, I mean, I would have been concerned. And I used to think that when I lived alone about myself. Like yeah. if I fell down the stairs and broke my neck, of nobody would know. Except for the people at work would be like, gee, we're, you know. And they would. Right. Like at least I know because it's right. happened. If I had, like now that I don't have, that I don't work for anybody but myself, it's different. But when I had a full-time job, whatever people may have said about me at work, one thing they could rely on was that I would show up when I was supposed to. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, when somebody um, last summer I worked with died suddenly, he lived alone. He only had a cat. Mm. He was 54, very nice person. Mm. That was, it was people at work. We um, kept calling him because he, he was reliable. He would right. show up to work. And finally someone got a hold of one of his friends and his friends went over and checked and he had just died in his sleep, luckily. Yeah. But you wouldn't assume, like if if you were just missing... I wouldn't say, gee, she probably just decided to go somewhere and start a new life. Yeah. I mean, how often does that happen? I know, especially when people have kids or something like and that. And it doesn't, it doesn't happen. And it happens to people who are in deep financial shit or some kind of, and they get caught most of the time. Yeah. Or mm. some kind of. Well, um, I did a, I actually did a column. shit. I actually did a column about it a few years ago and talked to an expert on it. And most of the people who just take off, and this isn't man-bashing on my part, but most of the people who just take off without a word are men who are either in a relationship or situation they don't want to be in or something else. And the huge amount yeah. of missing people in America are are men. And, and they're not always all found, but I guess the assumption is or the or the facts back up or something, that most of them haven't been abducted and murdered. Most of the missing women who disappear have been, because women tend to be just, and again, not man-bashing or anything, 
but just the way women and men interact is frequently different. And I'm not saying that there aren't and women who just take off and leave their kids. And but more communicative with yeah. people. If the, if there's a situation where a woman is pissed off about something or or fed up and what is going to take off, generally she tells other people that. Yeah, she'll, she's she do might that. not tell the guy. And she but always like brings her purse before, and her phone yes. with her. But like I said before. You tell people like the women that I work with. We tell each other stuff about our lives. And usually that's what you'll hear when it's a woman, like a situation where a woman has been suffering from domestic abuse and then either kills her husband or he kills her. Usually it's people she works with, other women usually. Yes. Or her fabulous gay friend if she yes, has one. Yes. But they usually know. Yeah. I mean, people know and there because are people... you will confide or other people that work right. with you will notice that there there are people who don't talk about domestic violence if they're a victim of it. They might not talk about but it, but you notice it. People notice if you've it. worked with somebody that's been in that kind of relationship, you notice, Jesus, her husband is calling here all the time. She seems fearful of him. Like, even if you but don't the thing say is, anything I think them, nowadays, you notice it. Nowadays, we're more aware of that type of thing and dynamics of that Maybe type of thing. Maybe we're more aware, but even... We've, we've seen a lot of things, like, in the 1970s and 80s and stuff, where they made, assumptions were made about a situation or people based on, you know, the Martha Moxley thing yeah. and some of that stuff, based on just assumptions people had about particularly women and how they acted. Yes. And the thing with Blanche Kimball is there wasn't a lot of that in, in play necessarily, but with her clothes in disarray as they were, it's not just a normal thing. Somebody's doing that to, like, humiliate or yeah. whatever. And Gary Robb did talk both at his 1977 hearing and later he had real intense problems with alcohol that he felt were responsible for a lot of his misbehavior that seemed to last through his life. But there were a a steady stream of things that happened with him in Maine in the year that Blanche Kimmel died and the year leading up to her dying that... I just feel nowadays would have pointed more to him. He was a clearly violent person, and you'd think that he would have been on their people. radar. I mean, like we were saying, Augusta is a small town. And, you know, it's kind of a joke, but round up the usual suspects. Yeah. I mean, you'd think that someone would have said, geez, you know what, that guy, I've arrested him, I don't know how many, or I've seen him drunk so many times, he's violent. He's The biggest thing to me is in September after... Or, I mean, October after, four months later, he's breaking into the house of a woman who lives alone with a knife, armed with a knife. Duh. Duh. So, anyway, that's the chewing gum murder. It's kind of become to know. Cold case. Cold case. And that was so clever of that cop in Seattle. Cop. They do, like, Beavis and Butthead used to say, Seattle, that's where everything's really cool. But, yes, yeah, Sosinski, and, I, you know, I used a lot of stuff from the Kennebec Journal and also the Seattle right. PI recommendations. And Pat Bonson. Oh, yes, I'd like to thank Pat Bonson. You know, he didn't have to talk about his brother, and he yeah. did, so thanks, Pat. <laughs> recommendations? We've been watching a couple stuff on... A couple yes, stuff. Yes, and we did talk about... I can't remember if it was the last episode... About well, Kimmy I recommended Kimmy Schmidt and you recommended Tower. I said I liked Kimmy Schmidt. Actually, I talked about Titus. I, I don't know if in the last episode I recommended Tower. You've talked. I've about talked Tower. to you about it, but I don't know if I've talked about it on here. I can check my text I history guess we and could find out. To our <laughs> podcast, yeah. Tower is 
a documentary about, and this is another thing, these, this didn't just start 10 years ago. This was the Charles Whitman shooting. Charles Whitman was a guy in Texas, and I read a book about him, too. It turned out um, he had a brain tumor. I, yes. But in any case, he climbed up the big nice tower at the University of Texas at Austin on a hot August day in 1966 and started just picking people off. He had already stabbed his wife and his mother to death, his pregnant wife and mother to death the day before. It's a very interesting documentary because they use... Animation. It's the special kind of animation. Yeah, they have actors acted out. Called... Yeah, actors acted out and then they animate over it. And so it's really cool. But they, in this documentary, they combined it with contemporary the actual footage people with the sh- and the actual people's words i didn't know if i was going to like it or not when i first read about I it you already said all this when you said it before. well what i really liked about it is you you didn't even really hear about charles whitman no it was all about the people who were involved what they had to say about it based on their interviews and i think it made it a lot more frightening that it was this faceless nameless person yes. Uh, I don't want to do a big spoiler, but I found this moment late in the documentary that just kind of brought it all home. It wasn't startling so much as that I don't I don't want to spoil it because I want it to have the impact on people it had yes. on me. It just really makes it real to you. Yeah. It just really the way they do that is so much better than having reenactment reenactments with actors that are actual people. Instead, they have these kind of cartoon type without making it, they're animated, they're drawing people. You know, they're, they're cartoons, technically they're cartoons, but they're not like Bugs Bunny. You know? Right. So, and to me, it's a better way of reenacting. It's a better way of reenacting it. It makes it more of a kind of almost like a um, novels that they have now. Graphic novels. Yeah, kind of graphic novelish. Yeah. And but it's the people's real words. And their real, their their stories in their voice and their words. Right. And animation makes it possible for them to show it as though it's happening back then. Yes. Instead of trying Without. to have reenactments that are so cheesy. And, that, um, so did you like it though? Tell me if you, Oh, uh, yes. Very much. Although I was crying at the end. Yeah. Um, because of the first victim, you see, who, who lived. The pregnant the woman. The pregnant woman. Yeah. And the woman that helped her. Yes. I don't want to say too much, but she was... Yeah, that just I, no, well, one one, just it's, it's, it. it's interesting too because one of the survivors they talked to is not somebody who did anything heroic that day, and she said something like, "You know, this really separates the heroes from the regular people, or whatever." And I learned that day that I'm not a hero because she was oh the one woman that was observing, yeah, that was observing that was the it. Window. There were people, as you'll see in the and documentary, because I, I probably would have been in her. Yeah, I don't too. know if I would have run into gunfire, but it, the thing was, one of the things I really like about it that makes it really dramatic, there were people, just normal everyday people, like the guy who worked in the co-op, the yeah. middle age, who you know people always talk about first responders. We run to the danger when everybody's running away, but there were a handful of just regular everyday people that went in this out of their way. who put their lives at risk, and I'm not just talking about putting your life at risk. And This guy was shooting anything that moved, but who did things to help people that were astounding, and it's really, and I just feel like it makes it so much more dramatic. 
I've learned about him in several classes. I went to school for one of my one of my many degrees in psychology. <laughs> yes. No, I went to school. Oh, why don't you play chess with so many yeah, degrees? Yeah. I actually only have two bachelor degrees. Oh well, so. that explains. But I went to school for and of course they always have a story about him. Um, of his but brain like I tumor? said, it was pre yeah, it was pre Columbine. Yeah. I'll, well, I don't know if they ever they thought that the brain tumor caused it. They're not. They sure. they don't know. They yeah. But you know, well, he was also was. a gun loving dumbass. There's a photo of him yeah. as like a three year old yeah, holding two, two rifles. But yeah, but a lot of people like guns. Yeah, like that's that. true. You know, but, and he was a marine. But you know, that would play into it if you have some kind of um, mental disorder, right. um, whatever. If it's amplifying things in your brain, then you know whatever. He, uh, but it could have very much been a, a brain tumor that that in any that case, put him over the edge. What, Although the book I read, it went into it's one of those really good true crime books that goes into everybody the you know the victims the um the cops yes. the ones that finally and got which him. That ha- I love that one cop that the uh, Martinez. Yes. Yes. And so it, I highly recommend. Yeah, it. it's really great. And even if you like me, feel that ooh, this animation it may be off-putting. I was really drawn in by it. Oh yeah, and I thought it was a very in. effective yes. way to yes. tell the story. Very and so your good. recommendation, well, then, Kimmy Schmidt. We ta- yes, we talked about characters that we loved, and I said I love Titus, and I hadn't watched it because Kimmy Schmidt. I hadn't watched it yet. I was very excited. I have not been able to finish. I've got like two episodes left of season three, but I highly recommend it. If you have not seen seasons one and two, you should. You should watch them before season yes. three. But not that you. I want to rewatch them because no. it's been so long. I forgot. And a also, lot they of just make happened. me laugh. Oh my god, it makes me laugh so hard. It's like there's so many jokes just constantly. I know that. That's the thing that when things. That make you laugh out loud I know, while I you're really watching did. them. Titus, because I've only watched, I think I've only watched two or three episodes right now. Oh my God. Have and you, there's a take on, and I have to admit, I'm old and square. I've never seen, you know, I know what uh, Lemonade is. Beyonce. Beyonce's Lemonade. And I've never seen the video <laughs> or anything, but there's a thing. He does his own thing because feels, uh, he feels he's been a jilted lover. And it is... So funny, and I'm sure if I saw hers, if I was familiar yes. with hers, which I'm sure the rest of the world has seen a million times or something, I would have found it even funnier. But, oh my God, have that you, guy is so funny. Have, have you been to the part with the commercials yet? The bladder control? No. Oh, oh my. You've got to go, girl. You've got, oh my God. It's A lot of times when comedies like this, they have a, a shelf life. And after a couple seasons, the characters start being caricatures of themselves, which on this show isn't, I'm not too worried because they're already caricatures. Right. I have to tell you, for instance, with Seinfeld, when when the audience started cheering and hooting every time Kramer walked into the room was when I started finding Seinfeld not as funny. That happens with a lot of them, and they just become too much of a thing. This show, (laughs) it still cracks me up because it's just, they're very broad in some ways. The characters are drawn with a very broad brush, but at the same time, they they are human. They have humanity, yes. and they're, but they're just so funny. It's just so funny. Um, Jane Krakowski. Yeah, I know. Cause, yeah, because she's so she narcissistic. She's Although everybody's narcissistic. Yeah, she is. <laughs> and her parents are on a lot more. Yeah. And this one has a lot of Josh Charles, Charles. from yes. who had been in The, the Good, Good Wife, Wife and, and Sports, Sports Night. Night. He's very funny because he plays a total like 
frat boy type yeah. asshole, adult and, male. And David Cross, who always David Cross, yeah, but he's not in from much. Arrested Development. He was Tobin. Tobias. Tobias on Arrested Development. And he's be on the man so, show. Um, so I, that show has got, I mean, I've been watching it all week you may, and I've been there laughing. There may be people whose sense of humor doesn't. I, as I said before, you, you're either going to think it's really stupid and just stupid. I can see somebody thinking that or you're going to like crack up. Because right. I can see people not liking it. It's a certain kind of humor. I mean, it, yeah. and it's a stupid humor, but it's not stupid like like the Farrelly brothers are. I'm not a fan, for instance, of the kind of humor like I that's in maybe a lot of Ben hurt. Stiller. Yes, I was going to say Ben. Every Ben Stiller movie I've either seen the movie or seen a trailer for, it shows an animal being abused in some way, and I don't know why that doesn't bother people more. But also just these constant poop and fur and sex jokes and boobs and boobs and I'm not. Yeah, you know, maybe it's because I'm not a 12 year old boy. I just am not interested in in that type of joke. This humor is much more spoofy, much it's more intelligent. Silly too. It's it's silly it's and silly intelligent yes i mean his takeoff on lemonade i've never seen lemonade but it was just so funny the lyrics and everything were just <laughs> so, so funny and i know that you had said before that your least favorite character is the one played by carol kane i'm getting warming up she's a little toned down than she was last season i didn't like the and i said this before i didn't like the durst character but he's gone yeah they got rid of him I think this season, so far, I've just Yeah, I said that to you while I was watching the first episode, I think. And then by the second episode, I was fine. And so, and I also love, like, Kimmy decides she's going to go to college. It's not really a spoiler to say that. But her, her, like, the college visits she does. And it's not like, yes, they're making fun of the the fact that she was in a bunker. (laughs) Which is a serious thing. Yeah. I know. Her character is very... Optimistic and can do, and that's part of the charm of it. Is she, even though she has clearly been through bad stuff, and she—it's not like she pretends it didn't happen, but she. Oh, oh my God, the fun. Well, you and haven't seen it, so Gretchen, I think, is the one that's very pro, like in love with with, with the Reverend. Reverend. She's in it, and she's trying to start her own cult because Kimmy told oh, her they play on. They make fun of stereotypes. They make fun of the way they do it is not, I don't know. It's not, not offensive. Mean, it's not mean-spirited. No, it might offend no. some people if you're really... Because the characters are likable that they're making fun of. It's hard, you know, they're like... It's the kind of thing where you, you're you making fun the, the, of something that... The only ones who aren't likable, I'd say, are like Russ's brothers, like Josh Charles. And his dad, and, yeah. And it's okay to make fun of because they're really mean, self-involved horrible people so it's okay to make fun of them because of the way they are but yeah so anyways that is my even though i already recommended that i recommend recommend it again again, yeah i'm going to the next thing i'm going to watch on netflix is the keeper so we can talk yes and i've just watched that and do you recommend it highly 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 recommend it it's just as much about the murder of the nun kathy sesnick and a young woman was murdered right after and I have a theory about that that we'll talk about okay. when it's not only about that, but also about the church sex abuse scandal. Yeah. And this was, this murder was 1969, so it was way, way, way before the whole scandal broke and stuff. But it was going on. And it's very, very disturbing the way young women were treated in, in at least one case in this show, young men, the way it was looked at by people 
the people's reactions to it. There's a couple heroes in it. I won't give it these two women who were students at the school where this nun taught who weren't abused or anything else but decided they wanted to find out what happened to her because they felt it just was never really investigated and for years they have been investigating doggedly it, doggedly and it's really it's fun to watch oh, good. because of that because i'm gonna be done but with it's but it also it's i think i want to say it's seven episodes and it's hard to stop watching they're each about an hour long and i uh, stayed up late a lot of nights watching it because I Ooh, I couldn't. Goody. But it's okay. So do you think we should talk about our new podcast? I think we should because I'm ex- very excited about yeah, it. Yeah, me too. And it's gonna it won't be out for a few and more this, weeks. This came about because we were gonna do an episode about um, the crime called the Crimes of the Brady yes. Bunch. But rewatching. Many of them. The whole Brady Bunch, like, except for the ones that aren't yeah, the missing episodes. Yeah, what the fuck, But we'll man. get into that. We're, so we're going to do a new podcast. It's not like they ever had real music on there, so it couldn't be the musical rights. Right. We're going to do a new podcast. It'll be, the episodes are going to be about half an hour long, where we're going to talk about, um, we're going to not talk about every single Brady Bunch episode, but we're going to kind of go through and talk, chunk them up, maybe some early ones. Yeah. And also, and Barry Williams, who played Greg Brady, has he done wrote, an assessment of yes, he episodes. Wrote a book, came out in like 1991. I think the one I have is a anniversary edition, Ooh. so it has addendums on it. So, so, so it's kind of a we'll, memoir, but then he also. And so after we about talk it. about the stuff we talk about in each episode of the podcast, we'll talk a little about what Barry Williams. And has I said. haven't read his assessments of them yet because we I don't want, want it to we want them to be my, fresh. But I've been listening, so I'm about I'm uh, watching. I'm through, I, mean, I was yeah, I've been watching them. And I on Hulu, and they're on the CBS site too. And, and some and of the ones they're missing are significant ones, so it pisses me I off. I know it's upsetting, and we may even have an episode about the missing episodes. And we're not only talking about the crimes, although there are very many Brady crime-related crime related ones, but there are also ones. But people always learn their lesson. But there are also things that were acceptable back then that are not would be considered criminal now. Now, so we're going to talk about so, that, and when in each episode we'll say which season and episodes yes, we're talking so about, you so you. Watch. Can go and look at them and watch after we've talked about them, or and maybe we'll say which ones are happening, yeah, which ones we're going to talk about next, next week, week. So then you can watch. So then you can watch if you want. And each episode is going to be about half an hour long. Yeah. Okay. And once we're done with the Brady Bunch, we're going to pick out another show yeah. to do. But no. in any case, no, that will be coming, and we'll give you ample. We'll give you ample time, time. so you can pre-subscribe. Can you pre-subscribe? I, I don't know if you can or not. But you can so. still subscribe to this one if you haven't, and rate us and review us. Yes. And you can and donate. Tell all your friends and subscribe. If yes. you go to our website, crimeandstuffonline.com, there's buttons to donate, and you can get some if merch, like our tote bags, yes. which which we like quite a bit. And, and our mother uses our tote bag all the time, oh, and she, she brags about us, yes, even does. though she doesn't listen. And yes. a sister today told us not everyone's a fan of listening to true crimes. Well, I don't think she's a fan of listening to us go on and on. And well, on. I can't really blame her there. But heard it hurt. But in any case, we we have an Instagram account now. You can yes. see photos and stuff that you, you may not see us, on somewhere. Is it follow? Yes, you can follow, follow us, us on, on Instagram, Instagram. or on Twitter. Now? What's hmm? it on and Instagram? What's our? It's what's crime our, and stuff. So you can Twitter. you can email us as many have at crime and stuff at gmail dot com. Yes, and we are happy to. We try to respond to all the emails we get. We do because we like to respond to people, and we have our Facebook page. Yes, crime and stuff. 
with an amper. I think that's, I think the, one that's the, the only one with an ampersand. So the, those are all the places you can find us, and we'll be back next week. Sorry. And so I guess that's it for this week. Yeah. Okay, and see we'll ya. see you next week. I can't remember now. I'm sorry. Oh Cut that out. Oh my Cut that out. God.